Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Have you ever heard this quote? I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. If you've heard this quote before, you might attribute it to the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and you would be right. She did say that a lot. But what you might not know is that Justice Ginsburg was, in fact, quoting 19th century abolitionist and women's rights advocate Sarah Grimke. Today, we will be reading the document that contains that quote, a series of letters from Sarah Grimke to fellow abolitionist Mary S. Parker in 1838. These letters were later published under the title Letters on the Equality of the Sexes and the Condition of Woman. And this book is known as the first sustained argument for equal rights written by a woman in the United States. Grimke has become a hero of mine during the past several years. And this particular text may be especially inspiring to listeners who are committed to holding on to their faith despite their struggles with patriarchal practices and systems. I know some of our episodes so far might have been hard for religious listeners to metabolize. They've been hard for me, too. Um, Grimke was a devoted Christian throughout her life, so this episode may give Christian women and men some encouraging new ways of viewing scripture. And it will still be fascinating for non-religious listeners as well. Um, But before we start, I want to welcome my reading partner today, Rebecca Archibald. Hi, Becca. Hi, Amy. Becca and I met in 2005 when our husbands were working on their MBAs at Stanford at the same time. We were neighbors on campus, and we both had two little girls at the time, and we had similar interests. And Becca, as soon as I met you, I knew you were going to be an important person in my life with important things to teach me. And that ended up being true. There are so many like nuggets of wisdom and things that I use in my daily life as a mother and as a thinker and just as a human being. And they'll come to my mind and I'll think, oh yeah, I learned that from Becca. (laughs) I'm so grateful that we've stayed in touch over the course of many years and many moves to various places. And I'm just so thankful that you're joining me today to talk about this book. So thanks for being here. Oh, well, I totally feel the same way, Amy, and I'm thrilled to be here. This is such a great project. It is a great project, and we, we were just saying before we started that it kind of reminds us of conversations that we used to have where we love we both love books, we both love discussing interesting things, and it's just been such an enriching week for me, or more than that, as we've been talking about this book together. So, um, But before we launch in, Becca, I always ask my reading partners to introduce themselves so that listeners can get an idea of the background of the reading partner and the perspective that you bring to the discussion. So could you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and lived there my whole growing up. I was the oldest girl of six kids, and my parents were awesome. They made me feel like I could do anything, including move to Boston and go to Harvard for graduate school, and which I applied and I got accepted. And right after I'd been accepted, I started dating, who is now my husband. And so there came a point where I was in major conflict trying to decide if I should go or stay in Utah. And my dad said go and my mom said stay. And I decided to go and my husband actually ended up coming to Boston too. And since we've been lucky to live in many places around the country, New York, Connecticut, Cleveland, Northern California with Amy, and now San Diego. In some of these places, I've taught high school English. And in all of these places, I've read books. Books were always my kind of way to cope with moving 
And you'd think both reading and teaching would come in handy at being home right now with five kids in online school. But let's just say we all miss real school. Oh, man. Um, is that not the truth? <laughs> right? I'm like, it is a whole new world. Um, but I've also loved the extra time home for family adventures and having the simplicity. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a we're recording in the late fall of 2020 when we're still in COVID lockdown. And it does help to be a teacher and, and to have those skills, I think. And but it's still so hard. <laughs> but I feel like I should have more patience along with those skills, right? Oh, so I'm sure you do. You have more than you think you do. Um, but thanks for that intro, Becca. That's awesome. The other thing that I'd love you to tell listeners a little bit is just what interested you in doing this project. Well, I mean, one of the big things that interests me was a scheduled conversation with you. Because like you said, oh. when we lived in Northern California, we'd wake up really early when it was still dark before everyone else was awake. And we'd run together in these beautiful wooded hills. And Amy and I would discuss potty training or racial injustice recipes. Basically, we'd kind of wrestle the problems of the world as we ran. And I just miss that. And so the idea of having a conversation with you scheduled sounded so fun and nostalgic of course, this is such a compelling topic as well. I read Sue Monk Kidd's The Invention of Wings a few years ago, which is a historical novel about Sarah and Angelina Grimke. And the minute I finished it, I started looking up information about the sisters. I felt so shocked I had never heard of them before. Yeah, I was. I agree. I was shocked when I learned about them too, that I had never heard of them before either because they're such an important part and played such a critical role in 19th century America, right? And I wish that more people knew about them. So it's awesome that Sue Monk Kidd wrote that novel. And um, that's actually the next thing we're going to do. That's the perfect bridge because um, we want to talk a little bit about Sarah Grimke, who she was and how she came to write these letters. So um, Becca and I will take turns kind of uh, talking through her bio. And Becca, why don't you start us off at the beginning of her life? Okay. So Sarah was born in South Carolina on November 26th, just a few days from now, in the year 1792. She was the sixth of 14 children. Her father was a rich planter, an attorney, and judge in South Carolina, and at one point, Speaker of the South Carolina House of Representatives. So he was kind of a big deal. Sarah's early experiences with education shaped her future as a feminist and an abolitionist. Throughout her child, she was keenly aware of the inferiority of her education when compared to her brothers. While her brothers went off to Yale, she was educated by private tutors on subjects like considered for a young woman, appropriate for a young woman of her class, including French, embroidery, painting with watercolors, and playing the harpsichord. Her father allowed Sarah to study geography, history, and mathematics from the books in his library and to read his law books. However, he drew the line at her learning Latin, which that just seemed hilarious to me. Like, why Latin? But that was the line for him. She was prevented from pursuing her dream of becoming an attorney because it was considered unwomanly. Sarah's mother, Mary, was a dedicated homemaker and an active member in the community. She was a leader in the Charleston's Ladies Benevolent Society, and her many charitable activities kept her from developing close relationships with her children. Sarah developed a connection to the enslaved people working on her father's plantation, which greatly upset her parents. From the time she was 12 years old, she spent her Sunday afternoons secretly teaching Bible classes to the young slaves on the plantation. Her parents claimed that literacy would only make the slaves unhappy and rebellious, making them unfit for ma manual labor. 
and besides, this activity was illegal. Teaching enslaved people to read had been prohibited since 1740 in South Carolina. Sarah secretly taught Hetty, her personal enslaved girl, to read and write. Years afterwards, she reflected on the incident, and I just love this quote because it just really captures her spunk. She said, quote, I took an almost malicious satisfaction in teaching my little waiting maid at night when she was supposed to be occupied in combing and brushing my locks. The light was put out, the keyhole screened, and flat on our stomachs before the fire, with a spelling book under our eyes, we defied the laws of South Carolina, end quote. But when her father discovered this rebellion, he was furious and nearly had Hetty whipped. This made Sarah realize that breaking the rules in this way would be dangerous for Hetty and her other friends. So she stopped teaching them to read in fear that they would get in trouble. Interestingly, Sarah's father told her that if she had been a man, she would, quote, have made the greatest jurist in the country, unquote. And that also just makes me just pause because I think, is that a compliment from her father or is that supposed to be like a horrible, like what you could have had comment, you know? Sarah believed her inability to get higher education was unfair. She also wondered at the behavior of her family and neighbors who encouraged slaves to be baptized, to attend worship services, but did not consider them true brothers and sisters in faith. So from a very young age, Sarah had an acute awareness of both gender and racial injustice. She believed that religion should take a more proactive role in improving the lives of those who suffered most. Her religious quest took her first to Presbyterianism. She converted in 1817. After moving to Philadelphia in 1821, she joined the Quakers, whom she had learned about in an earlier visit with her father. The Quakers were an egalitarian sect of Christianity with female ministers, and they were also outspoken critics of the practice of slavery. So she converted wholeheartedly. However, she encountered conflict within the Quaker community because she was too radical even for them. She encountered resistance when she tried to lead Quaker congregations, and she protested church segregation by sitting in what was termed the colored section with the African-American members. Recounting her move from South Carolina to Pennsylvania, Sarah said, quote, As I left my native state on account of slavery and deserted the home of my fathers to escape the sound of the lash and the shriek of tortured victims, I would gladly bury in oblivion the recollection of those scenes with which I have been familiar. But this cannot be. They come over my memory like gory specters and implore me with resistless power in the name of a God of mercy, in the name of a crucified Savior, in the name of humanity, for the sake of the slaveholder as well as the slave, to bear witness to the horrors of the Southern prison house. That gives me chills to hear you read that, Becca. It's an amazing um, quote. It's an amazing quote. Okay, picking up, um, in the spring of 1827, Sarah returned to Charleston. So she had been in the North and she went back to her home in the South to, quote, save her younger sister, Angelina, from the limitations of the South. Sarah was 35 at the time and Angelina was 22, so a much, much younger sister. Um, Angelina visited Sarah in Philadelphia from July to November of that same year and then returned to Charleston, committed to the Quaker faith. So she converted, I believe, in the north with Sarah. In November of 1829, Angelina joined her sister in Philadelphia full time. And for years, Angelina called Sarah mother as Sarah was both her godmother and her primary caretaker. 
Sarah and Angelina began speaking out against slavery, and abolition leaders in New York and Boston recognized the unique possibilities presented by Sarah and Angelina as spokespersons for the cause because they had grown up on a slaveholding plantation. So the Grimkeys underwent training in New York City where they practiced the anti-slavery message before small, largely female audiences. Um, Soon they were judged ready for larger things and were called to a series of lectures in the greater Boston area and in front of crowds ranging from several hundred to well over a thousand, the Grimkeys traveled from town to town, addressing in total more than 40,000 people that were sometimes, you know, curious and supportive, but sometimes very hostile listeners and um, I've read accounts of like groups of almost mobs outside of churches where they were speaking, throwing rocks through the windows and yelling and and picketing, but really growing almost violent. And um, actually here, I have to mention that this is where I first learned about the Grimkey sisters. Actually, I was doing a research paper on female abolitionists in Concord, Massachusetts, and um, specifically about the Thoreau family and the Emerson family, Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson. And the Emerson women and the Thoreau women, Henry David Thoreau's mother and sisters, um, were attending a meeting about abolition and and anti-slavery. And it was the Grimkeys. They had stopped in Boston and Concord on their speaking circuit. And so these uh, mothers and sisters of these two famous men in Concord were sitting in the meeting and they came home all fired up about the message. And I wrote my paper on how it was these women who actually convinced Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau to join the abolitionist movement. And they eventually did, but only after a lot of work on the part of those women to convince them. And um, their homes became stops on the Underground Railroad, um, along with the Alcott family. Louisa May Alcott's family was involved in that same movement. But it was the women who um, really took up the um the gauntlet took up the message and really worked on the men and that would never have happened if they hadn't gone to this meeting where the Grimkey sisters were speaking so um, that's how I first encountered them but anyway back to the story um Sarah and Angelina became passionately evol- uh, involved in the anti-slavery movement and they uh, met the famous abolitionist Lucretia Mott. And it was around this time that Lucretia Mott let Sarah borrow her copy of Mary Wollstonecraft's book, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, uh, which had been written the year Sarah was born in 1792. Lucretia Mott apparently kept a copy of this book on her coffee table and she lent it out to many men and women who had just come over to her house. Isn't that an amazing detail? I love that detail. <laughs> I love that too. I um, I just love how that brings it to life. And we'll be talking about Lucretia Mott in the next episode on the Seneca Falls uh, Women's Convention. So these are these people all kind of knew each other and were connected to each other and working in real time in these, in these causes. So um, anyway, as the, the sisters lectured on the abolition circuit along the East Coast, they, as we talked about, faced really harsh criticism and their public speeches were seen as unwomanly because they spoke to mixed gender audiences, which they called them promiscuous audiences at the time. And they also publicly debated men who disagreed with them about um, slavery. And this was just too much for the general public of 1837 because they were speaking in churches and other venues that frequently drew 
large hostile crowds of men, as I said, yelling and threatening them and throwing rocks through the windows. And um, Sarah and Angelina sometimes commented that they didn't know whether these rabidly angry protesters were more furious about their anti-slavery message or about the fact that they were women having the audacity to speak publicly to men about it. So on June 28, 1837, Reverend Nehemiah Adams wrote a pastoral letter of the General Association to the Congregational Churches under their care. This pastoral letter outlined the official stance of the clergy, or at least his view of the clergy in the in what whatever the General Association was at the time, but about the abolitionist movement. So this letter said that first, such controversial subjects as abolitionism were not to be imposed on the faithful as fit matter for debate. Second, the letter warned ministers to avoid talking to or otherwise accommodating those who introduced such matters to their congregations. And finally, it attacked the involvement of women, especially women speakers, in matters of public controversy. So this pastoral letter was in turn, in turn followed by two clerical appeals, which specifically targeted William Lloyd Garrison and the unseemly actions of women who took it upon themselves to operate outside their divinely appointed spheres of influence. And we'll talk more about that um, separate spheres ideology in several other episodes, because that wasn't just like, you know, one of his talking points, that was actually an ideology that was very much a part of the landscape of how people viewed men and women, but essentially that women's sphere of influence was only the home. So Sarah had already begun a series of letters regarding women's rights, but when she read those letters, she was predictably infuriated. (laughs) She must have been irate. Oh, I can you imagine? Oh. I'm irate just hearing like the title of the letters and then reading them. I'm sure like my blood pressure was like through the <laughs> roof. And to think of too, like it's hard for us to read these things in the 21st century, but those were actually the real rules that were limiting her life. And I just would have felt so enraged at the powerlessness, right? right. Of at these men just saying, nope. No, no, and no, and taking control, which is why we're doing this episode on a podcast about patriarchy, right? These men, presuming that they had the authority to tell her that she couldn't speak on something that she felt so strongly about. So anyway, so Sarah had um, had already started writing these letters about women's rights. And so when she read those letters from, from the reverend, she kind of switched gears and um, she started addressing him in those in those letters. So these letters were written between July 11th and October 20th in 1837. And she addressed these letters to the president of the Boston Anti-Slavery Society, Mary S. Parker. Grimke argued against those seeking to silence women's role in abolition specifically and the work of public moral reform generally. And she grounded her arguments in her interpretation of the Bible. First of all, because she was responding to theological arguments levied at her by reverends and ministers at the church, and that's why she made these arguments religious, but also because most people in the 19th century, um, especially in America, were Christian, and they still based their philosophical reasoning 
in the Bible. So these letters were published in the New England Spectator, and then they were reprinted in William Lloyd Garrison's Liberator magazine. And they have a place on many essential readings women's studies list, including ours. So there are 15 letters in this compilation, and Becca and I have each chosen a couple of them to highlight. Becca, we'll start with letter one, and then we'll just we'll just take turns sharing the main points from a couple of letters each. So take it away, Becca. Okay, letter one is titled The Original Equality of Woman. The quote that I'm starting with is her, Sarah speaking, of course, quote, I feel that I am venturing on nearly untrodden ground and that I shall advance arguments in opposition to a corrupt public opinion and to the perverted interpretation of holy writ, which has so universally obtained. But I am in search of truth and no obstacle shall prevent my persecuting that search. So a few things that um, I think the main thing that jumped out to me on this is the untrodden ground, the equality of the sexes was not part of the social and cultural consciousness. So each time a woman thought or published it, it felt new and foreign. There was no internet, chat room, and even difficult really to chat with your neighbors to read of others' similar experiences or thoughts. Though many other women scattered around the country surely must have written similar frustrations to Sarah's in a journal somewhere, she didn't have access to that. While Sarah was certainly an early voice on the subject, the untrodden ground speaks also to the way it felt for her. Surely she must have felt very alone and approaching a landscape that was unchartered, kind of like a forest where no path had been cleared yet. Yeah, I, I very much related to that. I'm literally one of those women who wrote my frustrations in a journal. <laughs> I, I could read them to you. Um, but yeah, this reminds me of an episode that we did um, at the beginning of this um, this podcast historical project on Gerda Lerner's work, The Creation of Feminist Consciousness, where Lerner chronicles a thousand years of Christian women authors through the Middle Ages and up to Sarah Grimke herself. And Lerner just points out that each woman feels like she's the first one to do it. Each woman feels like she's, just as you pointed out, Becca, that she's on untrodden ground because women have never had access to the writings of the women who came before them because they weren't published and they didn't get passed on. And so they didn't get to benefit the women who came after them. So, I mean, I, I just think more women need to know about Sarah Grimke and read this book, honestly, if for no other reason than to just know they're not alone, right? I agree. And when you feel those epiphanies or those intense experiences, you feel alone. You feel like it's, some, it's personal and yet universal at the same time. Yeah. I mean, after I had my first daughter... It was kind of a precarious labor. And I remember just feeling shocked and by the pain and trauma of the birthing experience. It almost felt like no one had ever experienced it before. Because if they had, they would have told me how horrible it was, even though, you know, obviously it had happened before. Mm -hmm. Her diction also stands out to me. Her, you know, the use of the word corrupt and perverted, such strong and acrid language. Not only is it an effective rhetorical method because it immediately establishes the cultural and religious views of the day as decrepit, decaying, diseased, which sets up the truth as the antidote, but also allows, I mean, you just feel that you're wanting something to cure this disease. And she had so many enforcers of other versions of truth in her life, and it cost her so much to give up those enforcers in the search for truth. Okay, on to the next quote. Um, quote, in examining this important subject, I shall depend solely on the Bible to designate the sphere of women, 
because I believe almost everything that has been written on this subject has been the result of a misconception of the simple truths revealed in the scriptures, in consequence of the false translation of many passages of Holy Writ. My mind is entirely delivered from the superstitious reverence which is attached to the English version of the Bible. King James translators certainly were not inspired. I mean, I just love how bold she is. Um, her knowledge of languages helped her see that the accepted version of the Bible at the time, the King James Ver translation, was a translation rather than the actual word of God. And she's bold enough to call the King James translators not inspired. And I'm sure it was this type of language that made her viewed as a radical because that was what so many people relied on. And I just love her boldness. And she's not even trying to like pat it. She just comes out and says, I believe they are not inspired. And of course, the King James Version of the Bible was translated by a group of 40 or so odd white English men from a British tradition who certainly, as a committee, had to compromise and negotiate on word choice, as well as they you know, saw the translation through their own cultural and social view of the world, which was patriarchal at the time. It was translated by men through a patriarchal frame. And I love how she kind of names that. And for me, as a, you know, a person you know, hundreds of years later, as a person of faith, I feel like it's so liberating. I can love the teachings. I don't feel like I have to throw out the entire text as uninspired, but I have the liberty not to do that because it's not dictating or limiting my rights. Absolutely. It's so powerful. Um, okay. The next quote that I liked um, starts, quote, I therefore claim the original as my standard, believing that to have been inspired. And I also claim to judge for myself what is the meaning of the inspired writers, because I believe it to be the solemn duty of every individual to search the scriptures for themselves with the aid of the Holy Spirit and not be governed by the views of any man or set of men. Again, I just am in awe of Grimke and her confidence in herself and her interpretation. Oh, that more women and girls question the system, the text, rather than themselves. I think her confidence and audacity is just, it's stunning to me. Mm -hmm. I love that she starts off these letters establishing her source, a source beyond reproach, the Holy Bible, but then she qualifies it based on the translation. It's a brilliant rhetorical technique as well as really compelling logic. Yeah, I totally agree. She's so bold and self-confident and just everything you said, Becca, that she says like, nope, I, I claim the right to interpret the Bible on par and on the same status as these, like the official translators who were commissioned by the King of England, right? She said like, she's basically saying that she has the same status as they do. And just how we just talked about, you know, this pastoral letter that came out from this reverend that where he he just assumes that he has the right to tell people how to think about scripture and how they should relate to, you know, their sources of information. And she just completely, she just inserts herself and says, I have every bit as much right to interpret and to, um, to believe what I think is true and what I want to believe. Anyway, that's just, she's just told by everyone that she's not allowed to do that as a woman. And she just doesn't regard it. She just, <laughs> yes, I do. And she just does it, right? Right. She's just so bold. And, and I see her kind of like latching on to the democratic ideals that the country was founded on. Of course, they ended up being interpreted just for, you know, the white men. But there's something so democratic about her establishing her du duty 
and write to search the scriptures and come up with their own meaning. You know, with the establishment of the American democracy came the idea that the common man, ideally and woman, had a voice, which is not the case in the more tiered societies of Europe. In Protestant America, you had, you know, priests and pastors who didn't have to speak only Latin and they could expand on the word of God. They could even start their own religions. So then why shouldn't and couldn't a woman as well? I can totally see, you know, her logic there in her mind. Why shouldn't she embody the tradition that started the nation by rejecting authority and questioning practice? Why shouldn't she? And she later asserts in letter 11, this quote, which I just loved, quote, best settle this on her knees before God, end quote. Just use her own inspiration. Back when we lived in Connecticut, and one of the main highways that I would drive was called the Hutchinson Parkway. And I remembered reading about Anne Hutchinson in high school. And every time I drove it, I kind of just like paid a mental like homage to her because she was another woman who challenged gender norms back in the 1600s. She preached and interpreted scripture and she was thrown out of Massachusetts and then finally settled in New York, which is where this highway was. And Grimke shared this belief that she had a right to think and interpret and express herself. To challenge, you know, the few authoritative voices that had a monopoly on dispersing information and thought. And it just made me start thinking about how today there's not like in a monopoly on, you know, thought where it's almost the opposite with the internet. There's just such an explosion of information. And yet the problem kind of is still the same, that people are still kind of just being fed information and not thinking or searching for themselves. I want them also to know, like Sarah Grimke said, it's the solemn duty of every, every individual to search the scriptures, the laws, current events, history, science, you know, to, quote, judge for myself, quote, as Sarah said. Amazing. Yeah, I agree. She's she's advocating for critical thinking, right? And for giving yourself the the authority and, and the right to have your own filter and your own lens and your own conscience, right? Right. To to make moral choices for yourself and to question, to question anything that comes your way to say, does this feel ethical? Does this feel right to me? Does this feel true? And, and, you know, look at different sources. And then, like you said, that to go to your knees and make it a matter of, of prayer. Um, it's, it's just so powerful. I love it. I do too. Okay. Then in this letter, she kind of goes through the whole creation step-by-step, you know, with her interpretation as opposed to the more patriarchal one. So the first part that she goes into is the creation, quote, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. In all the sublime description of the creation of man, which is a generic term including man and woman, there is not one particle of difference intimated as existing between them. They are both made in the image of God. Dominion was given to both over every other creature, but not over each other. Created in perfect equality, they were expected to exercise the visurgence entrusted to them by their maker in harmony and love. I love how Grimke says that creation was already, quote, swarmed with animated beings, quote, capable of loving and obeying and looking up to him. Like man did not need another subservient companion or a little, you know, a puppy dog looking up and... (laughs) adoring him <laughs> like he, they, we needed two partners that had you know talents and minds and hearts free agents you know endowed with intellect to work together okay so then on to the fall 
quote, had Adam tenderly reproved his wife and endeavored to lead her to repentance instead of sharing in her guilt, I should be much more ready to accord to man that superiority which he claims. They both fell from innocence and consequently from happiness, but not from equality. Amy, do you want to continue on with that quote? Sure, yeah. Um, the quote is, The truth is that the curse, as it is termed, which was pronounced by Jehovah upon woman, is a simple prophecy. The Hebrew, like the French language, uses the same word to express shall and will. Our translators, having been accustomed to exercise lordship over their wives, and seeing only through the medium of a perverted judgment, very naturally, though I think not very learnedly or very kindly, translated it shall instead of will, and thus converted a prediction to Eve into a command to Adam. For observe, it is addressed to the woman and not to the man. And she's right. Right, Becca? Like it. I know. I, I went back to the verse, I was like, oh, she's right. Oh my gosh. God does say, he shall rule over thee. Like, it's just a statement of fact. Like, I can see what's going to happen. But it's it could have been to Adam. He could have said to Adam, I command you to rule over her. But that's not what it said. So it very well could be just, he will rule over you. And, and actually, maybe God is even lamenting that, that that's going to happen. I don't know. She opens it up for a different interpretation without even needing to change the words, right? Right. Exactly. And this ties directly back to her thesis at the beginning of the letter that the text was wrongly interpreted. And a look at the Hebrew, show, Hebrew shows a difference in word choice, you know, which leads to different meaning. It's just so interesting how, it, like you say, it kind of opens completely up when you look at it a different way. Mm -hmm. She f follows up with a struggle for power that is characteristic of the fallen world. Quote, the consequence of the fall was an immediate struggle for dominion. Quote, innocence is replaced by greed, pride, embarrassment, fear, all which can feed the hunger for power for control over something to make things seem less uncertain. You can see that natural course, you know, the minute the fall happens and innocence is gone, all of a sudden the struggle for control begins. And then she ends um, near the end of the letter with this, quote, Here then I plant myself. God created us equal. He created us free agents. He is our lawgiver, our king, and our judge. And to him alone is woman bound to be in subjection. And to him alone is she accountable for the use of those talents with which her heavenly father has entrusted her. One is her master, even Christ. I, in addition to reiterating the claim of equality here, I love how she owns being a free agent. She sets that off by dashes on both sides for emphasis. Dash, he created us free agents, then another dash. A free agent makes choices and answers and accepts the consequences. Adam was as accountable as his choice as was Eve. They were both free agents. And in the end, they both have to answer to God with the only mediator being Christ. I so value Gramke claiming her right to her own revelation, her own thought, her own voice. And again, it feels so democratic. The phrase plant myself stirs up images in my head of people like coming off the ship from countries where they had no land, no voice, you know, no religious freedom, escaping to the, or escaping to the Western frontier where there's no social strata or hierarchy and kind of planning themselves with the hope, you know, for a better democracy or a better life, the freedom to choose. And so in some sense, I'm like, oh, I hope this feels like it's the beginning of something new for her, of planning her feet, of a new, you know, a new way of life. Hmm. That's a, yeah, I love that. That's a really great 
insight. And I, I had a similar thought too, that, that that's really struck me that, um, that phrase where she says here, I, here, then I plant myself. Um, and, and what that reminded me of was, um, Martin Luther, when he was testifying before it, it was called the diet of worms, when he was, was just a weird word, but that was, it was basically <laughs> like the court, right? Anytime I hear that, I'm like, it's so weird. Why do they keep calling that? Why do we still call it that? It's just like the court where he was being basically excommunicated by the Catholic church for, for criticizing the things that he saw as um, departures from Christ's original message. And, and Martin Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. Um, it, just refusing to recant his criticisms, refusing to recant the things that he really felt were true were and true. right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and Grimke is just taking a similar stand, just saying, I'm, I'm sorry, this is what I believe. And this is what I feel like God's spirit is telling me and, and telling me to do. So what else am I supposed to do? I'm just going to plant myself here. Yeah. So I love it. Okay. So, oh, thanks Becca. That was so great. And I, I just have to say, don't you feel like so many of these letters, I was like highlighting almost every paragraph. We had. I There's know. So, so many things we won't even get to. Well, that's the thing is I'm going back through it now, right? I'm thinking, oh, there's so much we had to cut out because we just didn't have right. time. Right. Yeah. It's it's so great. Um, but yeah, I love the ones that you highlighted from letter one. Um, and then I'll go on now to letter three and pick a couple of things. I just ha have to really quickly note that the, the quote that we started with where she says, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks is found in letter two, if any listeners are interested in that. So that's in letter two, but I'm going to go ahead and skip to cover letter three. Okay, so letter three is the pastoral letter of the General Association of Congressional Ministers of the State of Massachusetts. So in this letter, Sarah writes to Mary Parker that in the first two letters, she had not yet seen the pastoral letter by the Reverend Nehemiah Adams, and now she's seen it. Um, and of course, this is the letter that we talked about that warned Christian congregations to not get their heads all twisted up by abolitionism and also not to listen to female speakers because that was inappropriate. So Sarah now has some responses for Reverend Nehemiah Adams. And um, her first response is to point out that he is going to end up being on the wrong side of history, just like Cotton Mather on the topic of witchcraft. And I love that she brings that up just as a reminder, honestly, to all of us to think about like, I wonder what my blind spots are, right? Like mm -hmm. as but as we go on, I mean, our own grandchildren will look at us and say like, Grandma, how could you not know that? Or how could you not see, right? And I, I just love that humility. And I think that's a, a useful mental exercise for us all to do, to think, hmm, I, I might have some ways that I'm wrong too. Anyway, um, Sarah dives right into the letter. And so she writes to Mary ab about the letter. So here's the quote. It says, meaning the letter, we invite your attention to the dangers which at present seem to threaten the female character, that's in all caps, the female character, with widespread and permanent injury. Okay, now Sarah, that's the end of the quote from the Reverend, and Sarah responds by saying, quote, I rejoice that they have called the attention of my sex to this subject, because I believe if woman investigates it, she will soon discover that danger is impending, though from a totally different source from that which the association apprehends. Danger from those who, having long held the reins of usurped authority 
are unwilling to permit us to fill that sphere which God created us to move in, end of quote. Um, So I had two thoughts on this. First of all, the claim that women's authority has been usurped, that word um, harkens not only to Grimke's assertion that God gave women equal rights, but also that was just an enlightenment enlightenment principle that we talked about on in our episode on Olympe de Gouges, um, that, that concept of human rights that people are born with. And so this is the argument that the default condition of all human beings is liberty. And so she argues that men have stolen that liberty. They've usurped it. And I think that's a stronger argument than petitioning for rights that have never before been granted because it shows there's precedent for equality, right? Like Mm -hmm. this wrong, this injustice has been committed and taken something that existed before. So I just think that's really strong rhetorically. And then um, the second point that I thought of is she points out that Reverend Adams and the other ministers think that they're protecting the female character from, quote, widespread and permanent injury. And she says, wow, thanks for worrying about us. That's so nice. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, like she points out, actually, it's your own rules that are putting us in danger because they're not allowing us to achieve our potential and to be agents of our own lives, right? And um, to be autonomous. And we're going to see this over and over again in texts through the next episodes, women saying, thanks for trying, like, thanks for trying to protect us from the stress of voting, Thanks for trying to protect us from the stress of higher education. Thank you so much for trying to protect us from the stress of playing sports or from having a meaningful and exhilarating career or giving a sermon at church. That would have been so hard for me. So (laughs) (laughs) thank you for trying to protect us, but no, thank you. Like the way you can help us is to just uh, let us, let us, well, actually let us have the same rights that you already enjoy, which is just to live your own life without restriction, right? Anyway. Right. And thanks for protecting us from trying to end slavery, right? Be right. Be advocates right. against slavery. Like it's, yeah, it's crazy. Um, and the irony, the only protecting is one group really trying to protect their power share. That's really the only oh, protecting that's going on, you know? That, that's totally true. And to frame it like they're, you know, this, this patronizing thing, like, oh, I'm doing it for you. Right. The benevolent, yeah, caretaker. Right which I think they actually really did believe, but they, ju- they are just not seeing how insulting it is. And, and again, how limiting, like tragically limiting to real people's lives. Okay, let's see. So the next quote that I wanted to pull is um, from the Bible. So, quote, the Lord Jesus defines the duties of his followers in his Sermon on the Mount. He lays down grand principles with which they should be governed without any reference to sex or condition. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I follow him through all his precepts, and find him giving the same directions to women as to men, never even referring to the distinction now so strenuously insisted upon between masculine and feminine virtues. This is one of the anti-Christian traditions of men which are taught instead of the commandments of God. Men and women were created equal. That's in all caps again, created equal. They are both moral and accountable beings and whatever is right for man to do is right for woman. 
I'm going to continue, even though this is a long quote. Um, she keeps arguing with this reverence interpretation of scripture. She says, quote, but the influence of woman, says the association, is to be private and unobtrusive. Her light is not to shine before man like that of her brethren, but she is passively to let the lords of the creation, as they call themselves, put the bushel over it, lest peradventure it might appear that the world has been benefited by the rays of her candle, so that her quenched light, according to their judgment, will be of more use than if it were set on the candlestick. Her influence is the source of mighty power. This has ever been the flattering language of man since he laid aside the whip as a means to keep women in subjection. He spares her body, but the war he has waged against her, my, her mind, her heart, and her soul has been no less destructive to her. Alas, she has too well learned the lesson which man has labored to teach her. She has surrendered her dearest rights and been satisfied with the privileges which man has assumed to grant her. Um, this is one point that I had on my mind a lot several years ago as I myself read the New Testament, and I noticed the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, that throughout Jesus's teachings, he never once separates according to gender. Both men and women are taught to be humble and meek, and they are both taught to care for the vulnerable and the needy. Both men and women are taught to be strong by withstanding persecution and um, witnessing to other people and and furthermore, Jesus Christ, the, the Jesus Christ of the New Testament is constantly flouting cultural norms regarding all different groups, but especially women by talking with them openly, the women, the women at the well and letting the woman with an issue of blood touch him. That was like the height of uncleanness in the culture. And he made a point. He knew what he was doing. He made a point of including women. Um, right up to Mary Magdalene was the first witness of his resurrection. And I have a Catholic friend who once pointed out to me that that meant that at that moment, she was the entire embodiment of the Christian church because she was the one witness of his resurrection. And that was the most important role anyone could have. And he purposely entrusted that to a woman. Um, but anyway, back to Grimke's point, Jesus makes no distinction between the virtues that men should have and the virtues that women have. Christian virtues are Christian virtues, um, she says, and we should all be striving to cultivate them. So I thought that quote was just super important. Oh, I totally agree. And I like how she delineates the anti-Christian traditions of men versus the commandments of God. And I mm. think, you know, you know, in almost every church or religion or organization, you'll see policy versus doctrine can be conf a conflict and traditions can creep up, which are not based on the commandments of God. And like you say, the attributes, which the virtues were all supposed to cultivate. I love also how you point out how Christ was really flout flouting the social norms. He was a revolutionary teaching women, touching the diseased, you know, the lowest of society. And it's more evidence, you know, for Grimke that being a Christian doesn't mean just accepting norms especially norms that don't espouse equality or truth. Absolutely. He was a revolutionary. And so, yeah, she, she's kind of claiming a space in that tradition, right? right. She's saying like, I'm in good company. Right. <laughs> and this reminds me of what I talked about earlier with the research I did on these families in Concord, that the wives and daughters and sisters of Thoreau and Emerson 
were begging them, begging these men for years to stand up against slavery. And those men, they were good men, but they dragged their feet. And I remember reading about the moment when Emerson finally made a speech saying that he supported the cause of abolition. And Margaret Fuller was in the audience. Margaret Fuller was one of the geniuses of the 19th century, um, but she was denied a place at Harvard because she was a woman. And um, I just read, it's just one sentence that I read in this account of his speech that Margaret sat in the, Margaret Fuller sat in the audience and cried. Um, these women knew what was right. They were brilliant. They were noble. And in this case, they saw right and wrong before the men did. And yet they were completely dependent on the men to be the spokespeople and to do the right thing. And they had, they had no power to make social change at the time. And when they tried, they were told to get back in their proper place. So I'm just so inspired by Grimke's reminder that each of us individually answers to God for our actions. And she just had total confidence that her cause was just and that God backed her up. Well, that's all I have for letter three. Um, so I think you have the next one. Okay. This is letter eight. Um, we're jumping all the way to letter eight, and this is called On the Condition of Women in the United States. So now this is looking in the letter. She looks at women kind of around the world, and this letter focuses on women in the United States. Um, the first quote begins, quote, During the early part of my life, my lot was cast among the butterflies of the fashionable world. And of this class of women, I am constrained to say, both from experience and observation, that their education is miserable, deficient, that they are taught to regard marriage as the one thing needful, the only avenue to distinction. Um, it's fun to just hear about her growing up. We get a glimpse of the culture Grimke grew up in here, a world where women were applauded and you know, regarded, quote, as men as pretty toys or mere instruments of pleasure, unquote. Um, my thought on this is the social conventions of the South, upper class, was a whole different society than most other places in the country in 1837. I imagine the rules of etiquette for the female butterflies were extensive and frivolous. I know in graduate school, I had a friend from South Carolina, and she was telling me how even the silver patterns still in 2000 had a hierarchy. And she laughed when she told me that her family's silver pattern was kind of mid-level because it didn't go back and have as much history as other certain silver patterns that people chose. Like sil silver patterns like in place settings or place something? Setting like for utensils, yeah. Oh my gosh, how, wow. <laughs> and it just blew my mind being from the West because that wasn't something that you, we didn't, we don't even have a family silver pattern, you know, uh -uh. in my family. I've never even heard of that before <laughs> until the, right, until this moment. Wow. Right. And it was, it was a reminder that even, you know, now that culture is more fraught with conventions and rules than the one I grew up in. And it made me think about what the West was like since I'm from Utah in, in the 1830s, 40s, where women had, had to engage in meaningful work, had to be equal c contributors to survive. And you can see how marriage was at least more of a partnership of work and essential almost to survival but to someone in Southern society where marriage had evolved into a prize or a social status indicator, I just can't imagine how maddening that was for a passionate and intelligent person like Grimke. Yeah. Well, that's such a great point. I, I was thinking um, as I read the quote that like, oh, yeah, this is exactly like what Mary Wollstonecraft talked about. And that's true. It, it's really similar. But there is the, that really interesting, unique Southern United States manifestation of of that. Um, 
of the, you know, the butterflies of society. And um, I think that's really interesting to point out. So yeah, it's really interesting insight. The juxtaposition of such emphasis on manners and social convention and the barbaric practices of slavery must have just caused extreme mental dissonance for Grimke. I can't imagine trying to reconcile, you know, being maybe her mom was angry with her because she didn't hold her teacup right. And at the same time, in the other room, someone's being, you know, punished for not a slave's being punished. I don't know. It just feels like it would be extremely hard to reconcile mentally. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, in this next quote, Grimke is talking about marriage. Quote, for this purpose, more than for any other, I very believe that the majority of girls are trained. In most families, it is considered a matter of far more consequence to call a girl off from making a pie or a pudding than to interrupt her whilst engaged in her studies. All I complain of is that our education consists so almost exclusively in culinary and other manual operations. And I kind of had to laugh at this one because I love a good chocolate pudding and I can fully appreciate, <laughs> you know, the emotional joy of that. But mostly because to my modern ear, it sounds silly to value food over intellect. Mm -hmm. And yet when we first moved to Northern California, our elementary school was doing an auction and they asked, you know, parents to donate items so they could raise money for the school. And I'd spent the last 10 years working as a writing tutor, for helping people with application essays or high school papers, college papers. And charge a lot of money per hour. So I thought, oh, I'll auction that up. A few free hours of writing tutoring. And then I also auctioned up some homemade cookies. And guess which one didn't get one bid? And which one <laughs> sold for like over $200? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. It was so funny to me. Oh, my gosh. That is true. I would pay $200 for a plate of your cookies, Becca. <laughs> I have had your cookies before. Although I would I would pay more for your writing tutoring because you are amazing at that, too. That is such a great anecdote. I love it. Um, I thought as you as you were reading that, too, I thought that very first sentence where she says, for this purpose, meaning marriage, more than for any other, I verily believe that a majority of girls are trained. I feel like I really was kind of trained for marriage. And I feel like our culture as as I was growing up, not just our religious culture, but like literary culture, the popular culture and like um, Disney movies. I, I feel like it was really geared toward marriage for girls and prepared girls for marriage more than it did for boys, which I just feel like that doesn't do any favor for the girls or for the boys, because first of all, marriage gets conflated with cooking and cleaning, which they're not the same thing, you know, right. and and second, because if you overemphasize that marriage is the be-all and end-all for a girl, then it can set her up to derive her only satisfaction and meaning from that relationship. And, and that's not healthy. She can, be, she can become needy and codependent, and it, it's, it's actually really not healthy for her. And then it can also set up the boy to not be prepared for the emotional, wor the emotional work that's required for a healthy and joyful relationship in marriage. So like they're set up in this really weird, unequal partnership that isn't really either of their fault. But like when you prepare girls like, oh, you're grow up and get married and you don't mention that to a boy and he's going to have a career. It's just like doesn't set them up for success. Do you think I mean, that was my experience growing up. Do you feel like it's changing now for girls and for boys? Oh, my goodness. I mean, isn't that the question? I wish I could say yes, completely. But I mean, I think, I mean, I guess yes and no. Yes, because I feel like there are a lot more opportunities for school and work 
that didn't even exist when you and I were first married or in college. I mean, the marriage age is definitely later. So people are having a lot more life experience before that happens. Um, And because of technology, so many more women have companies and jobs that are are kind of able to, you know, create their own thing, Mm -hmm. exposed to so many different places to travel and study. But yet also social media has reversed with the women's rights movement by promoting and reinforcing that same message that a girl is her appearance, that she's to attract a man, that that's kind of, you know, for marriage or at least just male approval is the end all goal. The image of mm-hmm. the images of womanhood communicated by, you know, social media, Instagram, um, and trap, I feel like rather than liberate girls and women, they tie work to appearance and often sexual appeal. It kind of drives me crazy. What do you mm-hmm. think? Oh yeah, totally. I think Sarah Grimke, can you imagine her horror? <laughs> if she saw like I mean, if she saw like Instagram and and just this societal trend that you just I absolutely agree. I think she thought girls were too concerned with how they were like regarded by men as pretty toys, right? Like in the 1830s, she right. thought that was a problem then. I I think she would be sounding the alarm bell about social media and how it makes all of us, but especially young girls, as you say, like just way too focused on how they're perceived and whether they're like literally like getting likes, whether they're liked by right. by others and yeah, especially the male gaze, the male approval. So I think it's just damaging to our culture and damaging to our mental health. And I just think of Sarah Grimke, like using every moment of her life doing something so important. And I just picture people on social media, just, it's just such a waste of time, if nothing else too. And it just keeps us from achieving our potential and flourishing. So I, yeah, totally. I, I, great point Beck. Um, Okay, back to the text. Quote, they seldom think that men will be allured by intellectual acquirements because they find that where any mental superiority exists, a woman is generally shunned and regarded as stepping out of her, quote, appropriate sphere, end quote. Um, This gives a a window to me into the courage it took Grimke to step out of her, quote, appropriate spheres. Um, It feels, you know, definitely autobiographical with her, like maybe being superior mentally or intellectually, whether to brothers or her other men she's encountered. Um, But that appropriate appropriate sphere phrase, you know, really grabs me. You spoke about it a little bit earlier, but to her personally, she broke from her homeland of South Carolina, her family, her religion, her traditions, and, you know, left all of those spheres. She was willing to kind of give it all up. And to re- rely on her own intellect, her own heart, and also her faith to kind of construct mm-hmm. it all in her own way. Okay, the next quote is actually from something written by Sarah's brother, Thomas, and she quotes him in this letter. It reads, quote, give me a host of educated, pious mothers and sisters, and I will do more to revolutionize a country in moral and religious taste, in manner and in social virtues and in intellectual cultivation than I can possibly do in double or treble the time with a similar host of educated men. I love that she quotes her brother here. It gives an interesting insight into him. And if I believe my memory is right, he was the one who lent her the law book so that she could read while he was studying law. Oh, how cool. So I love that once wow. she had a brother who was sympathetic to her cause and sounded like he respected her in her mind. Um, and of course, I love it as it shows respect and inspiration for mothers. 
myself as a stay-at-home mom. It's a job I, that can feel very steeped in the domestic, you know, mundane. And it gives a meaning to the job of motherhood and meaning which I believe in for sure. But when this rationale is used to keep women only in the home, I have a problem with it that, you know, that it can be used both ways. I just think it's it, when you said that it, it's it's a problem when people use this um, kind of, um, I guess, idealization and idolization of the mother in the home and teaching children like that just harks right back to. Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Republican motherhood, where they say like, well, the value of a woman is as an educator of men, right? And so that her value is just as a means or a tool to benefit male society and to, to benefit her sons, which is a problem, right? I mean, it's it's wonderful to to give motherhood its due respect, which it deserves because it's so important. And I would add being a parent in general, right. fatherhood too, motherhood and fatherhood. Parenthood is a really, really important job. And um, yeah, but when you, when you extol it in a way that keeps the woman in a cage, it's a problem. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. Okay. The last quote I wanted to focus on in this letter begins, quote, I cannot close this letter without saying a few words on the benefits to be derived by men as well as women from the opinions I advocate relative to the equality of the sexes. Many women are now supported in idleness and extravagance by the industry of their husbands, fathers, or brothers who are compelled to toil out their existence at the counting house or in the printing office or some other laborious occupation, while the wife and daughters and sisters take no part in the support of the family and appear to think that their sole business is to spend the hard-bought earnings of their male friends. I deeply regret such a state of things because I believe that if women felt their responsibility for the support of themselves or for their families, it would add strength and dignity to their characters and teach them more true sympathy for their husbands than is now generally manifested, sympathy which would be exhibited by actions as well as words. Our brethren may reject my doctrine because it runs counter to common opinions and because it wounds their pride but I believe they would be partakers of the benefit resulting from the equality of the sexes and would find that woman as their equal was unspeakably more valuable than woman as their inferior, both as a moral and an intellectual being. And I just have to say, like, amen, like, hallelujah, I totally agree. I feel like this highlights the tragedy of forcing human beings, men and women, children into roles that have too much or too little power. Oppressors, ornaments, slaves. If you've ever been in a bully situation, even like a minor one on the playground, as the bully or the bystander or the bullied, all of the roles are deeply, you know, uncomfortable and traumatic. Mm -hmm. And when a culture imposes these roles on people, it brings out the worst in everyone because fear really steals the strength and the dignity that Grimke talks about. I feel like the only role that really doesn't feel horrible in that situation is like an upstander, someone who stands up and it is rare because it takes so much courage. And then, of course, that's the role that Grimke takes. Yeah, that's such a great analogy, the bully on the playground and how it's traumatizing for everybody. <laughs> that's such a good point. Um, I, I thought of a couple of things, too, and I had pull, highlighted this same quote when I read the chapter, Becca, and I my two thoughts quickly were just, um, I think I mentioned this maybe in the Olympe de Gouges episode also, but this 
this article that I read in the Washington Post that talks about Scandinavian egalitarian culture and how one data point from the study that they did on men is that men are happier, that men report greater levels mm -hmm. of happiness in egalitarian cultures. And one um, data point was that there was a lower suicide rate in men. Um, and the thought is that, that that's because they don't feel such pressure and stress as the sole leader and the sole breadwinner. They don't feel so much that weight on their shoulders alone because women are able to share the load. Oh, wow. Um, and that it was especially in like times of economic downturns that in America, the rate of male suicide goes up really sharply in economic downturns and in Scandinavia, it doesn't. And I think the title of the article is Why the Patriarchy is Killing Killing Men. Wow. And then another thought, and I, you know this girl, you can picture this exactly, but we've, uh, Becca and I, we've attended these um, girls camps in the summer together. And some of the girls camp songs are really fun. And some of them are a little problematic. <laughs> and I, I, remember, I remember one year, like all of our girls, like we're all singing the song that like, I don't remember how it goes, but it's something like money, money, money. Like I'll, I'm only going to marry a boy that makes lots of money, money, money. And I just noticed that. Um, yeah. And that's like all the boy was good for. And I went over to our daughter's friend. I won't say her name, but she was just scowling with her arms crossed and standing there, like refusing to sing the song. And I didn't like the song either. So I went over and I said, Oh, what's going on? Are you okay? And she said like, I hate this song. It's sexist. And it makes me so mad to think of a girl thinking of my brother like that and just wanting to use him for money. I was like, good for you, girl. <laughs> like, <laughs> high five. But anyway, um, I love that. I think it's such a great point that Grimke brings up. And good for that sweet girl. Her name starts with B. You know who she is. <laughs> oh, um, all those camp songs. It's so true. Yeah, Funny. Okay, so next we have letter seven, which is titled Condition in Some Parts of Europe and America. And I'm just going to share one quote from this letter, which I thought was interesting. Um, she says, quote, in Russia, women have been seen paving the streets and performing other similar drudgery. In Finland, they work like beasts of burden and may be seen for hours in snow water up to the middle, tugging at boats and sledges. In Flanders and France, women are engaged in performing laborious tasks, and even in England, it is not unusual to see them scraping up manure from the streets with their hands and gathering it into baskets. In Greece, even now, the women plow and carry heavy burdens, while the lordly master of the family may be seen walking before them without any encumbrance. Okay, so this is really interesting to me because at first I was like, well... I mean, if there's no difference between the sexes, as she keeps saying, then why is that a problem, right? I mean, men and women laboring together in fields and stuff. But then when you get to this, the, that last sentence where she says, oh, it's the women carrying the heavy burdens and doing all of this, like, really laborious, like, manual labor, while the lordly master of the family may be seen walking before them without any encumbrance. Yeah, that's a big problem. Um, and that my thought on that was that I remember, I've always remembered this conversation I had with um, a man of my parents' generation, whom I know well, but not my parents, um, who's, who said that, um, I remember him arguing that society needs patriarchy, essentially needs chivalry, 
and they need, you know, benevolent patriarchy wherein men protect women and set them on a pedestal because he argued men are just brutes and they will just make women their servants and they'll abuse them terribly. And he's like, is that what you want? And I, I really wasn't prepared and I had to think about it for a while. And I do actually, I agree that men have behaved this way toward women throughout history and it's appalling. And um, it, it still continues in, in some uh, places and in some households, even in our own country. I think less in general than it used to, but I see this choice as a false dichotomy. Those two options where on one hand, you option A is women are just used and brutally exploited. And then option B is women are locked in a safe gilded cage where they're not made to do anything hard, i.e. not allowed to do anything interesting. <laughs> and I just think that that's a false dichotomy. Those are not the only choices. I see it more as an evolution forward and just steps on the path of figuring things out. I think men in a less evolved state did take and do take advantage of women's smaller stature and her defenseless anatomy. And then a step forward after that might be men saying like, oh, we should not do that. That's morally wrong. That's terrible. And so maybe that takes a form of perhaps patronizing, but chivalrous respect for women because they think, oh, women, you're weaker than us and you're vulnerable. So we want to protect you. And that's a lovely step forward. But I think once we're there, there is another option that we step forward and say, actually, we are your intellectual and moral equals in every way. And so again, it's kind of like, thanks for wanting to protect us, like we talked about earlier. But um, but we're actually just fine. And let's work together as equal partners. So yeah, anyway, that's what I wanted to highlight from that quote. I love that. Well said. And then we'll, we can go on to letter 15, where we each had a quote that we wanted to highlight. Okay, my quote begins... It is said that modern Jewish women light a lamp every Friday evening, half an hour before sunset, which is the beginning of their Sabbath, in remembrance of their original mother, who first extinguished the lamp of righteousness, to remind them of their obligation to rekindle it, unquote. And Grimke goes on, I am one of those who always admit to its fullest extent the popular charge that woman brought sin into the world. I accept it as a powerful reason why woman is bound to labor with double diligence, for the regeneration of that world, she has been instrumental in ruining. And, ah, right? I'm like, oh, it. wait, is this the same author as before? It felt almost out of place, right? To have her double diligence, like that's hard for me. Yeah. And accepting this logic as true, which I don't, but I, I'm trying to appreciate where she's coming from. If a woman brought sin into the world, who has done the most to propagate it? Who has put the power structures, mm -hmm. you know, in place? to propagate evil and sin and, um, you know, whatsoever. I don't think you can actually blame it on one gender. There's, you know, so much sin in the world, so to speak. But I, I wasn't familiar with this practice. Um, I think it's actually the image is so beautiful, the lighting of lamps. It's such a beautiful image. I would like to hope that it's maybe evolved to mean something more like an act of hope and teaching and than rather than penance. I don't know. Yeah. That was hard. That double diligence is hard. Yeah, so hard. It reminded me of Sojourner Truth, right? Remember in her Ain't I a Woman speech? And it's there's that famous thing that like 
a world a woman has the power to turn the, the world is upside down and it's a woman who can turn it right side up again but the other part of that quote is that it's because a woman ruined everything and turned it upside down and that was so heartbreaking to read to, to hear in sojourner truth too that she had so internalized that that guilt that collective female guilt because eve ruined everything and so now it's a woman who has to turn the world back right side up and to read that sarah grimke thought that too that we have to work extra hard because we are the daughters of eve and so we have to fix things that yeah totally surprised me and kind of took me off guard and made me super sad <laughs> right and shows it really was such a pervasive belief at that time right yeah 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 so sad Okay, I'll take the, uh, the last quote before we wrap up in letter 15 is um, Grimke talking about women and um, they're asking men to help them with things. So she says, quote, I have blushed for my sex when I have heard of their entreating ministers to attend their associations and open them with prayer. The idea is inconceivable to me that Christian women can be engaged in doing God's work and yet cannot ask his blessing on their efforts, except through the lips of a man. I have known a whole town scoured to obtain a minister to open a female meeting, and their refusal to do so spoken of as quite a misfortune. Now, I am not glad that the ministers do wrong, but I am glad that my sisters have been sometimes compelled to act for themselves. It is exactly what they need to strengthen them and prepare them to act independently. Um, so this reminds me of a of um, something in our faith tradition, where I do I <laughs> I feel like this happens all the time that like the town is scoured for a man to give what we we call priesthood blessings. And um, I think priesthood blessings can be beautiful, but I I there are certain circumstances where it's really chafed me when there is exactly the situation that Grimke talks about, where there's an all-female meeting, like a bunch of teenage girls or a bunch of women who have a meeting, and they bring in the keynote speaker is always a man. Or at girls' camp, um, when this summer girls' camp that we talked about, that they'll bring in um, a a male leader as a keynote speaker in the evening meeting or on a long hike. I remember we were leaving on this long hike that was supposed to be this empowering experience for girls. And then they said, you know, if you have any struggles or then you can always pray to receive help. But if you have a really big struggle, then we have this man here who can give you a priesthood blessing. And I, I mean, when I read this quote from Grimke that, um, that you, you can't ask God's blessing on your efforts except through the lips of a man. I thought, yeah, I know exactly what that feels like. And I really struggle with that. I don't struggle with it. I just think it's plain damaging, honestly, to, to tell a girl like, well, if you have kind of like a mid-grade problem, then just ask God yourself and he'll help you. But if you have a big problem, then you need to scour the town and find a man. Um, to help you with it. I, and it kind of like subverted some of the goals that I think that we had for the girls at girls camp. And I just, I think, um, I just personally really agree with Grimke's point here that I love the message of like, dig deep, right? 
dig deep and figure out your the own answer to your question, your own solution to your problem. And when she says, I think this is exactly what girls and women need to strengthen them. If you can't, if they can't find a man to say that prayer for them, then it actually is good for you to think, oh, well, then what can I do about it? And is my prayer powerful enough? And is my intellect powerful enough? I think that's um, the empowering message that I definitely would want to give to girls. So yes, I love how she says sometimes compelled to act when they're compelled to act for themselves is exactly what they need to strengthen them to prepare them to act independently. Exactly. Exactly. Well, what a great discussion, Becca. There, as, as we said, there is so much more. And I just highly recommend listeners reading the whole thing. Um, it, it's just so chock full of wisdom and great examples. But as we wrap up, is there like one key point or a takeaway that you want to share, Becca? Uh, let's see. I mean, I think something that stood out for me was that at the end of every letter, all 15 letters, um, Grimke ends the letter, quote, thine in the bonds of womanhood, unquote. And while bonds could have been referring to her relationship with Parker, meaning their shared experience of being women, I initially read it as bondage. And each time I would read it at the end of the letter, it just felt heavier and heavier. It seemed to communicate the heaviness of her experience living in a, the bondage of a society where other human beings were traded and sold and her own choices being so restricted in helping that you know, that practice be abolished. Despite every reason to be cast down and broken by her own experience of living, you know, side by side of that, being traumatized, she used it to try to lift and better the world. I've noticed that I don't notice bonds or, you know, something that's keeping me back until I try to move and they restrict that movement. And Sarah's movement was trying to abolish slavery. She kept getting restricted in her efforts because she was a woman. She had such a unique perspective on slavery and both her and her sister, Angelina's courage, their determination, their perseverance. It just amazes me continually at how they were willing to just persevere to change the world, even though it probably felt like they were making very little progress at the time. I just feel like I so wish that Sarah Grimke could have known that she'd later, years later, be quoted by a female Supreme Court justice. And that quote mm -hmm. would almost become like, household you know known by every household wow that's amazing even though I brought up that quote at the very beginning I didn't think of that and how powerful that is that's amazing um thanks Becca I I, I mean I think my takeaway is probably similar to yours I just I think of Sarah Grimke like a prophet I she could see things that no one else could see at the time and she knew she was right she knew God was with her and so when her own, even her own parents, and we all kind of just believe what our parents teach us, right? I mean, it's it's really hard not to. And her family members and ministers and the public at large were all trying to tell her she was wrong and trying to silence her. And she just was not deterred. And she and her sister had a huge impact on their speaking tour, rallying their fellow Americans to abolish slavery. And if she had listened to all the people to tell her to get back in her proper woman's sphere and stop talking, it is really quite possible that it would have taken much, much longer to get the 13th Amendment passed. And so much more damage to people's lives would have been done with every passing day. Um, and I just, I mean, she's really 
a hero to me. The Grimke sisters shaking things up as women leaders also is what got the wheels in motion for the whole women's rights movement and the eventual passage of the 19th Amendment as well. So I, I think of her like a prophet and a hero, and I've loved spending time in her company as we've read these letters. So anyway, well, Becca, thank you again so very much for being here and doing this project with me. I'm so grateful. Thanks for sharing all of your amazing insights today. Oh my goodness. I've loved being here. And I mean, I, Amy, I miss those runs. Amy, you have always been so insightful, so compassionate to every like person at plight, you know, different conditions of living. So it's just always such a uplifting and beneficial thing to talk with you about anything from politics to potty training. So my pleasure to be here. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thanks, Beck. Thank you. Well, our next episode is actually really neat. It's a continuation of the story we told today. Um, it's two speeches by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott, who we mentioned earlier, um, delivered at the iconic Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention in 1848. The Seneca Falls Convention was the first women's rights convention in the United States, and it is thought of as the event that launched the women's rights movement, or what's also known as the first wave of feminism, and that eventually resulted in the passage of the 19th Amendment 72 years later after that convention. Um, these speeches that we'll be reading are really groundbreaking, and they are essential reading in U.S. history, so look them up online. They're easy to find, and they're not terribly long. They're actually quite easy to read. They're the Declaration of Sentiments and the List of Resolutions from the Seneca Falls Convention, again, of 1848. It's also worth looking up Elizabeth Cady Stanton because, like Sarah Grimke, she first became a social activist in the cause of racial justice. And then and then afterwards, she became an activist for women's rights. And this was one of the big social phenomena of the 19th century. You had lots of white women involving themselves in the anti-slavery movement and then discovering through that process that women were not being listened to, were not being treated fairly. And then that kind of triggers a big feminist awakening. And then they realize like, oh, I'm being oppressed. And then they fight for their own rights. But whereas Sarah Grimke kept stressing racial justice and integration and um, urging white women to never forget Black women, Stanton, on the other hand, really kind of turned her back, even on her Black supporters, including Frederick Douglass. So it's a really, I think, important story that still has relevance, and we'll discuss it in the next episode. So read up if you can, and then join us for an invigorating discussion on the Seneca Falls Convention speeches next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs>